1: What's up, everyone? It's 3 p.m. on a Sunday. Thank you so much for joining us for our Sunday uh, Cannabis Congregation show, where we focus on social equity, advocacy, and activists in the industry. Today, we're speaking with John Delaney from the Law Enforcement uh, Action Partnership Group Leap. Uh, So we're going to be talking with him. How are you guys doing?
2: Doing well, Lauren. How are you in Chicago? Sheltering in place?
1: Yes, indeed. Stocked up on all my all my goodies. How about you guys?
2: Oh, we're good. John, uh, where are you joining us from?
3: I'm in a town of uh, about 100,000 called Bryan, Texas. Uh I joins College Station, Texas, the home of Texas A&M University.
2: Well, thanks for joining us. You know, about 10 years ago, when I started getting into activism pretty big to promote my book, <laughs> Um, uh, you know, in the case of USV Yerba's as I rebranded it. Uh, I remember an organization called Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, LEAP. And then I, I saw that I was going to have you on the show and it said Law Enforcement Action Partnership. And I, and I was a little confused. I'm like, am I remembering this correctly? Um, uh, are you guys LEAP?
3: We are LEAP. LEAP, Leap began um, in 2002 with the our uh, originators being five former narcotics officers uh, up in the Northeast, and it's expanded throughout the country and internationally to people who touch the law enforcement system in some way. I happen to be a, a retired district court judge here in Bryan, Te- in Texas, and I currently, I guess, spend most of my time in child abuse and neglect cases.
2: What do you do for those cases? Excuse me? Well, what types, uh, well, how do you serve in your capacity for those cases?
3: Well, let let me back up just a second and finish the thought. Uh, several years ago, law enforcement against prohibition decided at the board level that they were going to expand their name to more accurately reflect their interest, which was broader than simply, um, drug drug prohibition law reform and hence the name law enforcement action partnership so they have a variety of interests but the the principal focus is still drug law reform now you ask about what I've done I um, have what I do I've, I've been a trial court judge for 35 years I'm 74 years right now uh, old and I retired from elective office at the end of 2000. So since then, I've served uh, as what we call a visiting judge, which is analogous to a substitute teacher. I handle cases here locally where the the local elected judge is conflicted out or is ill or on vacation, that kind of thing. And I travel around the state doing that. Mm -hmm. And for the last 10 years, my... Well, up until recently, my principal focus has been on child abuse and neglect cases. So, after a child is removed by Child Protective Services, there's a a hearing within 14 days after that removal where the agency has got to prove to the satisfaction of the judge, me, that they should continue to have legal custody of the child as opposed to ordering it back to the parents. And Mm -hmm. if, if they succeed in that, which they do about 95% 95% of the time, then we spend a year or more uh, trying to patch up that parent in various ways to enable them to create a safe environment for the children to return. And if they if they succeed, we're all ecstatic. If they fail, then we wind up having a trial to see if their parental rights are going to be terminated. Hmm.
2: Yeah, I used to be a trial lawyer and kind of, I was a bank lawyer, so it was mostly summary judgment or bench trials, (laughs) nothing with a jury. Uh, But the docket in Peoria, even, and in Chicago especially, would be very, very full. How's the docket in Texas?
3: Well, the docket is um, a general term. We have, certainly we have lots of cases of different kinds. I've tried for capital murder cases. Uh, uh, I've handled a wide variety of civil and criminal cases. Um, a typical day in what we call a child protection court, where these child welfare cases come before me, will have anywhere from 10 to 20 cases on it that require anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour to resolve, whatever the issue is at that time. And I'll just say anecdotally, that's probably the most rewarding legal work I've done since I got a law license. I'm I'm wearing my my Leap uh, pen here, appropriate for today's activities, but I'm also wearing, just for symbolism and what have you, Mm -hmm. the the T-shirt that shows I'm a member of the Child Protection Law Section of the State Bar of Texas, where we keep abreast of all the legal developments in child welfare. And you may be be interested in knowing, because this is uh, a subject of constant discussion uh, when I go around and give speeches, the impact of uh, the use of illicit drugs on children. About half of all the cases On my docket uh, are related to the use of methamphetamine. Oh, wow. It's it's a scourge in our community um, throughout this part of Texas and throughout much of the southern tier of states, for that matter. And a lot of our cases begin when mothers show up at a hospital uh, to deliver and they test positive for one drug or another.
2: Oh, man. So they're. Hmm. It's interesting that I seem to be getting a, a back loop. Uh, that could be related to any number of, and now it's it's all right. Sometimes with this, the software that we have, it takes a little bit, but it worked itself out. Um, so the illicit drug use uh, by the parents comes up. How often in, in these cases that you see?
3: Well, to give a complete answer to that question, let me begin this way. The the, the parents that we encounter in these child welfare cases have one thing in common, almost universally, and that is poverty. Hmm. After that, after that, uh, mental some a mental illness of some sort uh, is often involved, and some form of substance abuse is often involved. That's it. A... And and methamphetamine is the primary one. It's often co-existent uh, with uh, other drug abuse, of course.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Marijuana, less so. But I can tell you that <laughs> uh, when a mom shows up to the hospital to deliver, mm-hmm. and she's positive for you know poly drug use, right? Doctors appear and give evidence in my court, and they say nobody nobody who's this heavily involved in drug use, including marijuana, right. should be going home to uh, try to raise the baby. So we keep the baby at the hospital, and we call Child Protective Services, and that's why you're here today, Judge. How, they, make, how? They, they make no bones about it.
2: Yeah, but I then I want to know then, because one of the largest pro- uh, providers of mental health care uh, in the in the country is the prison or the criminal justice system. How does the mother and the parents, because I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it's not just her using drugs alone. I'm assuming that there might be some other people using drugs with her. How do they get uh, help for substance abuse in, in your state?
3: Not easily. Um, we, um, we don't take these parents in custody and lead them around by the hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, we do assign caseworkers to them that come very close to that. But they will direct them to uh, an agency to go through an evaluation. And if they talk truthfully about the extent of their drug use and it meets certain checklist criteria, then they'll qualify for drug treatment services, and it may be inpatient, it may be outpatient, and after they go through the treatment, one kind of the other, then they're monitored to make sure that they don't use drugs again, and of course, they frequently relapse, so that that's yeah. a problem, that's a problem, because obviously, the focus of the system is primarily on protection of the child, and Less so on, uh, less so on p- protecting the, the parent. Yeah, I, I will say that there, unofficially, there are groups now starting to crop up that mentor parents who are caught up in this circumstance.
1: Are you seeing? Are, to are you seeing
3: like
2: benefits from this mentorship?
3: Well, it's not happening here locally in my community. Um, hmm. and I'm not sure what the answer is. It, anything is better than nothing. Right. But, but as you know, um, our country is not, um, what shall I say? Well-equipped to, to handle crisis, with, right? And then not only that, it, to, to it, deal with parents, to deal with adult drug addiction. We talk- I don't think
2: they're, or, 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 or they're not good at dealing with drug addiction. They're not good at dealing with poverty. And then to a certain extent, it's the, the education amounts as, as well that they have to, that can help lift people out of poverty so they can get better paying jobs. Um, that's something that always frustrates me here in Illinois or just in general is that we have all this money. And then it doesn't. I mean, they're going to go print another two trillion dollars. And they can't address underlying causes of addiction and poverty and and stressors that, well, you mentioned mental illness, mental illness as well. You know, it kind of does correlate to levels of poverty and to levels of uh, addiction, but they don't treat it. And I I think that maybe they don't treat it because uh, it's the minority of the population. Uh, Most people are fine. And then they kind of look down on people that have an addiction because they think it's weakness as opposed to uh, like a health concern. You know, I, I don't get it.
3: I I think that's right. (laughs) Um, Policymakers in the state houses of our country and in the Congress of our country suffer from the same prejudices that many of us do. Sometimes the lowest common denominator, it seems like, and, they're reluctant to vote money for programs that that they're very skeptical could help.
2: Yeah, and like the welfare prejudice. There would just literally be prejudice against the concept of welfare.
3: Uh, once people once people are broken, they're you know the attitude is they got broken of their own doing and we can't unbreak them, so it's kind of every man for himself. And if you um wind up abusing children along the way. We're going to take care of the children as best we can, but you're on your own, buddy.
2: But I don't necessarily know if they're taking care of the children as best they can because they're creating more trauma in these kids by making the separation and then by not helping their actually biological parents out with their legitimate medical issues so that they can be a, a better role model for their children. So it, it might be perpetual. And so that, that, do you see any, Uh, I don't know if you can see it generationally, but you served for many years. Uh, Does it correlate as well? Like if your parents were, uh, had a problem with, with uh, protective services and then 20 years later, uh, are you more likely to have one?
3: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. We see it frequently. The parents who show up in our court very often have a, what's called a CPS history. They were, they were the children of uh, people who are involved in CPS and we may have removed the child or we may have left the child there. Um, I, well, I, it would, it would, it'd be inappropriate for me to start spouting statistics about what works best removal or keeping children with parents. But there's no doubt. There's no doubt that removal, especially of a child beyond the age of two or three is a, uh, a fresh trauma for that youngster yeah but i I can i can tell you many many uh heartwarming success stories about children who've been removed and now adopted because i see them come into court with their parents i preside over the adoptions Mm -hmm. often and there's a room full of uh, extended family and grandparents and smiling children and they all come up stand by me for a picture um it looks like a, a, a wonderful change of circumstances for these kids. Yeah. How it will work out over a course of a child's lifetime is another matter.
2: Well, I'm I'm happy that they are at least giving them an opportunity, but um trying to f- Fix uh, larger addictions is something we often talk about on the program, uh, and we'll discuss the prevalence of alternative substances besides cannabis that people can use uh, appropriately or inappropriately. Uh, and the inappropriate use of cannabis is—it's a thing, you know. Um, I don't necessarily dab, but I think that if you did it all the time, it, it could be a problem, especially if you have responsibilities. But uh, you mentioned, um, meth at the top of the show. And so do you see like, um, a spectrum of substances that are, are, and then ranking them by their health, or is it just, here's the stuff that's legal. Here's the stuff that's illegal. Don't cross the line.
3: Well, I think that begs the question of As we try to reform drug laws, how do we deal with the question that comes at us so often, which is, where do you stop? Isn't this the slippery slope toward legalizing all drugs? And the answer I give is, I don't think so. But I know this. I know that we can decide on each drug as it comes along. And for now, we're talking primarily about marijuana. And we can isolate on that and decide whether we ought to reform the laws applicable to that. And, and the slippery slope argument has no place in that discussion. No. Because, because I, one does not necessarily follow.
2: Yeah, and I absolutely agree to you, with you. And then it also, it conflates the factual specificity of a chemical substance. You know, it, it's saying almost like, you know, because I if I go try to change the light bulbs in my ceiling, uh, you know, light fixture up there, they might have an entirely different amount of screw that I, I and so like one light bulb won't fit into another one. And people can understand compartmentalize uh, that sometimes things are different, but then for some reason with drugs, they're just, they just go, oh, but slippery slope. They're all the same and and that's that's a disservice to the factual specificity of each drug they could be like no These are the chemicals. Here's their symptoms. Here's what it does to your health. Uh, This is meth. Here's the symptoms. Here's what it does to your health. This is alcohol. Here's what it does. And like, here's tobacco. It's not that there's that many recreational substances out there that, and we're, it's, it's not like we're so oh you know, just so simple that we can't understand and appreciate the relative harms and differences of 10 substances. I just it boggles my mind the way that we have historically, and by historically I mean since the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, uh, regulated drugs as if they are not only all the same, but all to be criminalized and to have no questions about them. And I think the the slowness of the cannabis legalization movement. Uh, was really weighed down by the fact that it was illegal to study, and that it was 1975, and you could easily sit and on and suppress information, and so you could make these slippery slope arguments that kind of prey on our collective naivety uh, of these substances. So you know, whenever I hear the slippery so- slope argument, I'm like, it's not a slope; it's a staircase. You know, it's sure it can go up and it can go down, but here's this step. This is what that is. Here's another step. It's a unique thing. You know, cannabis is not cocaine. It's just it's it's not. And why they are lumped in and and regulated in more appropriate ways like that. And then they and then they actually seize your stuff and it's illegal to study them and all sorts of uh, heinous, heinous punishment things, uh, I think, is a posturing of, of being tough on crime, which. That was the slippery slope right there, because that posturing by being tough on crime meant that we can just take a medical condition, a condition called addiction and bulldoze it.
3: No doubt. Ah. I agree with what what you say. I can can tell you that, uh, well, for some perspective, I have been appearing before committees in our Texas State House in Austin. Now for, let's see, But by the way, we, our legislature only meets every other year. If you can imagine. <laughs> really? that. Oh yeah. For 140 days.
2: Now did that, okay. Uh, I know that an Illinois state legislature makes approximately $75,000 a year, or at least they did recently. I'm not sure if they've voted themselves a pay raise every year, but they meet every year. Um, I have a couple of questions then. First, how much do you make as a member of the elected state legislature in Texas? And second, do you only get paid every other year?
3: They get paid $7,500 annually, last I checked. That's That's, enough. That's 10% of Illinois. Yeah. And they get paid every year, even though they only meet every other year, because they obviously have lots of other duties besides meeting in session in Austin. They have client Mm -hmm. service. And I mean, because constituent service and whatnot. But to my point, I've got a little bit of experience with uh, confronting the the opposition, so to speak. I testified in 2013, 2015, 2017, 2019, and I look forward to testifying next spring in 2021. And sometimes the opposition testimony, and, and we're talking about principally two things. One is reducing penalties or decriminalizing. Uh, that That's one half of the fight. And the other half is uh, legalizing marijuana for, for medical purposes. In 2015, we succeeded in uh, passing a, a very, very highly restricted medical law that was uh, applicable to only one qualifying condition which was um, epilepsy um, two years later was it two actually it's four years later oh, 2000, yeah.
1: 2019
3: oh, we, wow. were able to, we were able to amend that law to add a host of different qualifying conditions okay so in the in the 19 session, we still had the ongoing fight about lessening penalties to try to quit arresting people, to quit stigmatizing them with a conviction that lasted a lifetime. Oh, wow. Uh, quit quit using police time to take people to jail uh, for nothing more than, than possessing marijuana. And oh, wow. every time we go before one of these committees, we talk about the fact that, you uh, there are over sixty to sixty, 60 to seventy thousand people are arrested every year in Texas for possession of anything from a pinch to an ounce of marijuana. So oh my we- God!
2: We could you could legalize it, tax it, and and fund not only homeless shelters but also mental health facilities and, and uh, drug addiction rehab facilities to help fix the problems. I just however.
3: however- Uh, legislators have a tendency to listen to elected sheriffs and appointed chiefs of police and and statewide officers too. And what the police will tell you, what they tell these these, uh, legislators is that it's very important for them to continue to possess the discretion, police discretion, whether to arrest somebody or not when found in possession of marijuana, because it aids uh, law enforcement against more serious crimes. No. Nope. And, um, and so we, we face that argument. And my comeback to that is, if 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 possession of a small amount of marijuana is a serious enough crime to be on the books, then we shouldn't give discretion to a police officer whether to enforce that law or not. Uh, because it that opens up law enforcement to possessing, I would call it a
2: violation of the Fourth, of the Fourth Amendment. I would call uh, it a violation uh, of the Fourth uh, Amendment. But you're right; it's the abuse of powers because now you've given them such power to to uh, ha, just rove over people.
3: You know uh, what happens. You know what happens is, as a practical matter. Um, and I said this on the floor of uh, this committee hearing after hearing all these police officers talk about discretion, 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 and we're not going to take good people to jail over a small amount of marijuana, blah, blah, blah. And I said, this makes me tremble. Mm -hmm. This makes me tremble to think that in a public park somewhere, when you come upon a disturbance and you find a 17, 18 year old minority kid who, because of his background, decides to give the police a lot of lip and they say, you're not going to get away with that with me, bud. And so they hook him up and take him to jail after they find the marijuana in his pocket. Right. And then he sits in jail for a week or so, not able to make bond and he comes before a judge and without any warning about what's going to happen to him in the future, because of this, he pleads guilty to simple possession of marijuana he gets time served and a fine and court costs, which he never pays. But that simple event getting marked with a, a scarlet M here on your your forehead stays with him until his death. It never goes away. And so we we hear time and time again, people with a marijuana conviction have lots and lots of problems getting employment, access to benefits, and so forth. I go. I go around the state uh, talking to rotary clubs about the this issue, um, marijuana law reform, and invariably, at the end of the talk, there there are two groups that come up and talk to me. Some want to have me um, prosecuted. Oh, Jesus! <laughs> well, they're very much in a minority. A much larger group, and I'm, I'm being. Facetious about that. They wanna, they wanna take me on and argue about this. What about
2: they? They like the status quo. They're like, we're fine. We like this crime.
3: It's gonna make, it's gonna make our children use more drugs, Judge. What are you thinking? And then Uh, there's a lot. That's
2: that's the slippery slope. That's the slippery slope. It's gonna make them use more drugs, Judge. That just taking drugs, pushing them together in a pile, and saying that is drugs. As opposed to saying, this has got stevia in it. Stevia is a sweetener that's not sugar. And, like, you know, it does a disservice to the objective reality of the situation.
3: There's a much larger group that comes up next to me and says, let me tell you about this business of uh, having a marijuana conviction. A large automobile dealership owner here in this community told me one day after I finished making my presentation to the, the Rotary Club here in my town. He said, I know exactly what you're talking about. He said, we hired this young man who was about 35 years old and he was a terrific mechanic, but we had to submit his name to our insurance carrier. They ran a background check on him and found out that when he was 18 years old, okay, half of a lifetime ago, he got busted and convicted for possession of marijuana. Therefore, We, as the insurance company, deem him to be uh, a risk. (laughs) So we will not, uh, nor the rest ever, just that one. We will not insure him. Uh, So he's going to be an exception on your liability policy, car dealership. And you're free to hire him if you want to. Well, we're not going to say you can't. It's just that he won't be covered. So you'll be flying blind naked, liability wise, if you take on this guy. And so, the car dealership says, you know, out of a responsibility to our owners, we uh, feel like we have to pass on him and hire the next guy who doesn't have a marijuana conviction on his background. Now, what is that guy, the talented mechanic, going to do?
2: Move to Illinois. Left?
3: Moved to Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a good idea. So anyhow, one of your talking points was what's the situation in Texas? Okay. Mm-hmm. So. I'll be happy to talk to you about that a minute cuz it's 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 fascinating in a lot of ways
2: but you're scaring me in the sense that like I'm the I I've talked to people uh, in other states, but they usually are in states where we have way more progress. And so like people will ask, well, when's it going to go legal at a federal level? And if there are states, which it's sounding like Texas is going to shape up as one of them, that is still so mired in the past and and not ready to make that change. I mean, like you described your medical program as essentially allowing CBD hemp for one disease being uh, epilepsy. Uh, and then-
3: no, it's it's much broad. It's much broader than that. But it now, but well, it, it, now, still, but, but it, when it, it
2: started, how like four or five years ago. Merely, I mean, so like it, this stuff, these changes to realize people are wrong and this the entrenched system is wrong, take a long time. And and then, uh, they, I don't know how long it's going to take in Texas. Why don't you explain more t- about it to us?
3: Don't be scared. Okay. Uh, re- rejoice, because. We've made enormous progress from where we started and the trend line is in a positive direction. You know, there's a, there's a wonderful quote from Martin Luther King who borrowed it from somebody else that um, the arc of history, the arc Mm
1: -hmm.
3: of history bends toward justice and it has hiccups along the way, right? We have these setbacks, but in general, um, justice wins out over time. We, you know, we no longer have, uh, children working in coal mines all day long. We, we have gotten to the point where we allow women to vote in this country. Right. But it wasn't very long ago that that wasn't allowed. So things are getting better. Yeah. Okay. So, um, it, in, in this last session of the legislature, we had the medical thing going on, and we, we made a quantum leap uh, for us uh, toward uh, a full-scale medical marijuana program. Still very very expensive to get a license in Texas. Uh, huge regulation, like you say. The license fees are, last I heard, around a million bucks. It's oh just it's just awful. Okay. And there are only three licensees in the state of Texas. So for the most part, people who use marijuana for medical purposes are getting it by Federal Express out of Washington or Oregon, or they're buying it on the street, ditch weed. And by the way, I should say that I'm I'm a sworn officer of the court. I have to enforce laws. Of course, I have wide discretion about what kind of sentence to impose. So nobody should think that I would not enforce a law. And they should also know that I'm not a marijuana user. So uh, that's not my thing. My thing is all about uh, trying to help that arc of justice bend in the right direction. The arc of history bends toward justice. And on the other side of the reform uh, uh, register is where I work, where I talk. Um, I talk about the, the the sad state of affairs we have in our country where the the criminal law enforcement is the real slippery slope. That's the real danger. It's the criminalizing of drug possession that's far creates far more social damage than the use of the drug itself.
2: Oh, absolutely.
3: And we have the saying in leap that I I like to use in my talks that. Uh, kind of resonates with people. It's simple, but it it speaks the truth. You can get over an addiction, but you can never survive a conviction. Mm. Like the 18-year-old kid, now 35, who talented at working on cars, can't get a job. Okay. So in this last legislature, medical side, big, big advance. Criminal responsibility uh, the, the the movement to decriminalize or lessen penalties, got a bill passed in the Texas House with what is described as a supermajority, meaning more than two-thirds. We have 150 members of the Texas House of Representatives, and by a vote of 103 to 42, the men and women in the House of Representatives here in our state said yes to lessening the penalties in a very bold way. They didn't go so far as to decriminalize, but they brought possession of marijuana one ounce and below down to a fine-only offense, a non-arrestable offense, citation only, then show up in court. Uh, If you plead guilty or are found guilty, it does not count as a criminal conviction for purposes of driver's license suspension. So no longer would they lose their driver's license automatically for six months uh, like they do under the current law? Well, the people's representatives, the people who the, the legislatures who are closest to the people voted 103 to 42, a miracle. I mean, we there was dancing in the aisle. It immediately goes to the other end of the Capitol building, to the state Senate, where the presiding officer is a person called the, the lieutenant governor. In Texas. And you would think that in the normal course of events, um, a person in that position would take that piece of legislation and assign it to an appropriate committee and let them do their thinking about it and decide up or down. And if it if the vote is down, then it doesn't get to the Senate floor and it doesn't get approved, therefore it doesn't get to the governor's uh, desk. And so we don't have a law but our lieutenant governor chose to not assign it to a committee, but instead just to keep it in his office and personally killed it. Now, I confronted a state senator who came to talk to our Rotary Club about that, and I said, how do you feel about that? And he said, well, he chuckled, as they always do, and he said, you just have to understand the way things work. And he he's elected by all the people, and he feels like that's his prerogative and so on.
2: He hates you. So. That's what it is. He's prejudiced. I'm sorry? He's prejudiced. Prejudice? No, that's that's literally it. I mean, like, if I met this guy and I, I talked to him for five minutes, I would know that he hates marijuana, or he just doesn't care about it. And he knows how to make money from keeping it suppressed or illegal. And so his constituency and the money that they gave him is more important than these other, these, these human lives that are being injured by official state actions. And, and it just, it's sick. I mean, I'm glad that Illinois has legalized and I look forward to other states continuing to legalize so that we can continue to bring pressure towards change of our uh, legislation specifically for this plant. But, you know, and that's something in Illinois, we didn't get uh, an ounce. We only got 10 grams decriminalized in 2016. And that helped Uh, to bring about, I think, the full legalization. But you should check out our uh, legalization bill uh, because you mentioned how it costs like a million bucks to get a license. You have all these people in Texas that have been harmed because of their state's laws. And in Illinois, they created these new state laws for cannabis that are designed to help those people that were harmed. And they decentralized the industry. You can still be vertical, but you have to get uh you have to acquire each license. You're allowed to, but then there's caps on the licenses so that you can't ever have hegemony and only like three licenses handed out for $55 million, like they would do in Florida. So if you really want to see a way that you could help achieve our common goals of being able to keep the some sense in the into the drug laws and also to to help families that are suffering from addiction from poverty from mental health uh if you legalize and tax it in the methods that illinois has used and then structure the licenses in those methods that there have been so many companies formed in illinois that are social equity companies it, and it's going to be a huge blessing for the, the communities that are the they, they very often are the ones that are the most uh, affle- affected by these laws because they have the least amount of resources to fight back against them when they, they do get picked up uh, by that police officer who, in his discretion, was arresting him for a joint in his uh, pocket uh, because he was being a little too uh, glib and disrespectful to the police officer.
3: So what happens in Illinois when um, a police officer makes a stop and let's say he has a drug dog and the dog alerts on the car or the police officer himself uh, smells the familiar smell of marijuana wafting out the window? What's that police officer's legal right as far as searching the vehicle now?
2: Well, again, I always preference this by saying I'm no longer I'm not I've never been a criminal lawyer, but uh, I don't even know if they're going to have probable cause for the smell Uh, smell is getting up into the uh, whether that constitutes possible cause, I think, is at the Supreme Court level right now being asked. But because Illinois has such a fervent hemp program here and the dogs are not smelling for an actual chemical substance, they're only smelling for a couple of terpenes, karyophylline, uh, and also pinene. Uh, and because of that, uh, those those dark drug dogs could be giving false alerts. Uh, and they very often do, especially if you see and I don't have it right now. Sometimes I'll have jars of CBD hemp, which is lawfully grown, but it does contain traces of uh, THC. Mm-hmm. And it has the same sti- types of terpenes, so the dogs would be able to uh, smell for them. Now, not only uh, is there that, so like, you know, uh, w- I, I drafted many uh, notice to law enforcement for my hemp clients that are shipping stuff, so they can be like, no, 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 uh, yeah, your drug dog's going to falsely alert, but you see, you can't detain me because according to the farm bill, this is a an, interne- uh, an interstate shipment of industrial hemp, here's its paperwork, it appears to be in order, uh, you can call my lawyer on that. Uh, And then it gets better because the crime labs do not have the uh, ability to be able to determine what the content of uh, THC is in the cannabis to see whether or not it is lawful industrial hemp or uh, untaxed cannabis is what I call it. Because if it's if it's legal and you're under your ounce limit, it's okay. But if you are, you know, if you have a pound, let's say, and you're clearly uh, going to try to sell it without collecting the state's taxes or without a license, uh, then uh, it becomes a question of, well, can the uh, can they prove uh, the content of the THC in the cannabis itself to determine whether it is industrial hemp
3: or marijuana? So I raised the question of probable cause to search because So in the 2017 session, I had a meeting with some law enforcement people and a district attorney made that argument. He said, the minute we decriminalize any, you know, any quantity, not full legalization necessarily, but just decriminalize it. -hmm. um, We're afraid that when a police officer makes the stop, smells the marijuana, searches the car and finds uh, uh, you know, evidence of the recent bank heist or evidence of a murder or a dead body or what have you, then it's gonna be thrown out by some court on the theory that the officer could not distinguish between um, non-arrestable under one ounce and something greater than one ounce. And my argument at the time was you know, it, it could be one or the other. Surely law enforcement, certainly this judge, would say law enforcement's going to have the discretion to uh, to search because it could be more than one ounce. And nowadays it could be more than 0.3% um, THC, you know, the, the hemp marijuana issue. I need to come back to that in a minute. But <clears throat> the district attorney was really... Um, Insisted that that was a a problem that that would cause him to forever pound the table and resist um, decriminalizing any amount of marijuana because it would hurt law enforcement in the, in the, you know, the genuine exercise of real important police power, not just some discretion in the park thing. So uh, I said, okay, if that's your thing, then I'm going to suggest that we amend the bill to write into it that police officers will still retain probable cause if they, if they smell marijuana, irrespective of part of it being decriminalized. Well, that didn't help that year. Uh, (laughs) But, and I'm not sure it was even, I don't think it was even in the bill for 2019. Maybe that argument went away. I don't know. Having said all that, just a month ago, I read a report of a case in California where one of their appellate courts threw out a search where the police found some bad evidence of a crime, evidence of a bad crime. Um, And and the guy was convicted at trial. So it goes up on appeal and the California appellate court said, ah, marijuana is is legal here uh, under a certain quantity or something. And the police could not tell what the quantity was. Therefore, bad search. I, well, think
2: I think that's the similar question now that's going up onto Illinois is the smell. Like can can you tell the difference between an ounce and, uh, you know, by smell and whether or not that would con- constitute probable cause? But is that is that what, then the other thing is uh, I don't know much criminal law because I've never practiced it. Uh, I, I had what I had in law school, but I, I still remember something called like the fruit of the poison tree doctrine when you are trying to suppress evidence that was unlawfully obtained. Uh, and is that what that is?
3: That's exactly what that is.
2: There we go. Uh, Thank you everybody for tuning in regarding learning actual things. We're talking about the the fruit of the poison tree doctrine.
3: It's a a real issue when you talk about law enforcement opposition to uh, marijuana law reform. They want to be able to search that car that's got marijuana smoke coming out. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, they've got to keep marijuana illegal, or at least have the law declare to them that they've still got probable cause, even though uh, marijuana, some subset of marijuana is legal to possess, which leads me to another story, which is, is kind of interesting. In the last legislature, 2019, where we where we fail to get decriminalization um or even reform. We still have the existing law about criminalized possession of marijuana. Um, Another bill was passed in the wake of the federal farm bill about hemp, right? All of a sudden, federal law changes. Farmers are going to be able to legally produce hemp Mm -hmm. uh, defined as cannabis under 0.3% THC. So state after state jumped on the bandwagon and changed their laws to allow their homegrown farmers to be able to take advantage of this federal law. I mean, we're going to remove all of the legal prohibitions to manufacturing possessing hemp. So they changed the definition of marijuana to something that has greater than 0.3% tetrahydrocannabinol. Mm -hmm. Well. (laughs) unbeknownst to the legislature who thought they were doing a a very good thing for texas farmers they de facto decriminalized the cannabis plant 0.3 grams and below right so so that creates a dilemma for law enforcement and for and for prosecutors when the police come in with this evidence they've seized, the question is, you know, in order to prosecute this case, officer, we're going to have to be able to prove that that's greater than 0.3% THC. How are we going to do that?
2: They can't. That's, they can't. The crime lab doesn't have it in Illinois.
3: The crime, we don't have enough crime labs here with the, the sophisticated equipment that can do that. Right. Uh, it turns out, by the way, I should say real quickly that right here in my own county, Texas A&M University, uh,
2: agriculture university right?
3: says that they have found a way to do this. Oh, cool. And there's a little gadget that they're going to develop. It's going to take a long time to mass produce them, but they have um, a system using lasers to be able to field test and give you a reading about whether it's 0.3% uh, or more. So, as, as, as the practical fallout of this, <clears throat> the practical fallout of this has been yeah. that <laughs> marijuana arrests have plummeted because yeah. police know that they don't know that they can't prove it. They, can't prove it. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have access to uh, laboratories at the local level, the, the DPS and uh, the Department of Public Safety in Austin with a big crime lab um, cannot possibly process all of these volumes of, of marijuana. We, we arrest. The last number I had was that we arrest 80,000 people a year in Texas. I've always, I've always heard something a little bit less than that, but anyhow. So this blazer,
2: blazer, uh, that raises the other only part of criminal law that I'm somewhat familiar with. And it comes up in other aspects of litigation, depending on if you're going to have like experts, uh, involved. Is that a Daubert and Fry standard uh, or Daubert or Fry, uh, depending on what, now that's expert testimony. Like how would this laser be classified to be able to provide foundation of evidence? You know, is that going to be, you know, it's, it's standard in the industry. Is it, do you have the Fry standard in Texas or do you have the Daubert standard?
3: Uh, well, we have the Daubert standard for the admission of expert witness testimony
2: Right. What's the um, one for, uh, like, you know, how did, cause the, the, the BAC, the DUI, I mean, they, there have been tests that have been introduced and then used in, in criminal law and right. but they, you have to, they have to be reliable and you have to have like some type of standard to know whether or not you have it. What are they, what is that?
3: Well, we don't know yet in the case of this particular device, at some point there's going to have to be some, some study that proves its reliability and accuracy. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but that's coming. And and what's more, there are a lot of uh, laboratories being built as we speak to be able to to test marijuana, to make sure the thing that the officer seized was greater than 0.3 percent uh, in order to do what? Well, to continue to prosecute these people. Right. So we're going to spend a whole lot of money developing the infrastructure to make it possible to get convictions of people for having greater than 0.3%. Yeah. But,
2: but then right. in Illinois, in, in Missouri, increasingly in Florida, in, in in state after state after state, they just stopped doing it. And the state is fine. If anything, the the rates of opioid use and also methamphetamine use decline, alcohol use declines. Uh, the economy continues unabated or actually grows a little bit. Uh, the taxes kind of pile up, which the states kind of enjoy having. Uh, and then they they buy stuff. Uh, so why is their love of arresting and criminalizing uh, people for this plant why does that deserve preference <clears throat> over the, what we're doing in, in the free states?
3: Well, you know, I've thought about that a lot. <clears throat> when I used to give these talks in front of Rotary Clubs, church groups, civic organizations, I included a slide in my PowerPoint, which was kind of insulting. It said, I know what I know. I believe what I believe. Don't confuse me with any more facts. Um, We we have to acknowledge the fact that for at least three generations, Americans have been told over and over and over again about the evils of all drug abuse, marijuana just being the most common uh, devil's lettuce. Um, it's going to take time to change those attitudes. And we know that those attitudes are changing. Um, The arc of history is bending toward justice. Um, But the people who have this fear, people who have this fear about the evils of marijuana are just like the rest of us. Our minds have been shaped and you can bring all this book learning you want to all this logic that you want to all these statistics that you want to about kids aren't using any more drugs any more marijuana in legalized legalized states you can do all that that you want but minds still have to be changed now the good news is the evidence is just piling up everywhere that minds are being changed right here in the <laughs> sovereign state of Texas, which was at one time a republic, you know, and we've never forgotten it. We're extremely proud of it. We think we're special right here in Texas. Um, in the summer of 2018 at the uh, all important political party conv- con- conventions that summer that, that preceded the beginning of the legislative session In January of 2019, this issue of partially legalizing, decriminalizing, expanding medical all came up, all came up in the in the conventions of both political parties. And as you would expect, the Democratic people said, oh, yeah, more reform. We're all for that. The Republicans did the same thing. They said. We're tired of this. And by a vote of over 80 percent, they endorse decriminalizing low quantities of marijuana. You know, their kids are getting arrested. Their grandchildren are getting arrested. They've had enough of it. Right. And they, they've listened. They've, their minds have, have changed. And you don't do that overnight. It's just like I used to be a Navy officer and uh, I served aboard this great big ship. One of the things you learn early on when you're trying to uh, drive a ship is that this thing doesn't have brakes. It doesn't stop on a dime. You've got to be very careful. And if you want to turn it one direction or the other, it takes a long way to get it to turn. So it's the same thing with public opinion. Mm -hmm. You You can't make a right turn. You've got a long arc.
2: Yeah, we do a lot of shows on here uh, with all over the country. And one of the best uh, anecdotal pieces that we'll hear that really does help bend the, the, the arc of history towards justice uh, is the personal anecdotes that people will have because, you know, like you said, they, they've already made up their minds. Don't confuse me with the facts. Uh, and then what will happen is there, someone they love or themselves will get sick. And then they'll have access to medical cannabis and they'll be like, this changed my life. And I was, I really didn't think it was, I mean, cause they, they had already made up their mind and then they were at their end of the rope and then they said, okay, I'll give it a shot, you know, uh, and it works. And so uh, those types of anecdotal stories will come to Texas when you, well, fortunately right now, if you guys do have access to CBD hemp, there's a lot of great CBD uh, before and after stories that are out there. They're really, really excellent. But then when you have the ability to have the entourage effects and get the the THC molecule in there as well, uh, that's when you can just really get a lot wider range of uh, treatment benefits that you can see. But I'm glad that you guys already have hemp. I, it's it's It really does help.
3: Well, <clears throat> I can tell you that in the committee hearings, in our state capital, (laughs) to their credit, these legislators listen uh, like 12, 14 hours worth of testimony from human beings whose lives have been affected by um, illness and how much um, benefit they've gotten from using cannabis. And I've seen it with my own eyes in in people that I've encountered. Um, I have a I mean, I've got tons of anecdotes from personal experiences. I'm, I'm convinced that uh, people ought to have access to cannabis if they and their doctor or they without their doctor think that it's something that they'd like to try because they're not going to hurt themselves very seriously in the effort.
2: Or they might not themselves at all. I mean, in Illinois now, with our statute, we have the po- public policy of the state deserves access to safe cannabis. And so how and we should have an adequate supply of safe cannabis available for the people in the state. Uh, that's actually built into our laws and we contemplate that. And it's going to be it's going to be very interesting to see how Illinois and, and its cannabis laws uh evolve and shape up over the next few years. But to the extent that I can, I'm going to try to export it uh, as <laughs> many places as I can simply because I think they did a really good like out of all the States that I've seen. I think they've done one of the best jobs. I think it's a little overly restrictive and a little bit too regulated, but the way that they've organized it in such a way to keep it uh, kind of decentralized. So you're not going to have any one big player. It's still expensive, but it's the least expensive well except for oklahoma oklahoma is free for all but um it's it's a very well regulated and then they have a lot of social equity built into it to to help fix all these problems that for decades they believed and then if we just change and make a few select millionaires and don't repair any of the damage we did we aren't really going to fix as many problems as we can you know
3: yep yep that's that's a problem no question about it so in illinois um Are people allowed to actually smoke cannabis as a medical?
2: That. Yes. Yes. They're allowed to smoke cannabis as a medical plant. Uh, you have to be, uh, I, they may have changed it. Tobacco 21 swept the land, uh, all over the country. And so they actually did change the, the medical uh, law in Illinois so that you'd have to be over 21 to buy, uh, smoke or vapables. Uh, and they that may, they may have rolled that back to the original 18, but, uh, we don't have any THC limits. Uh, we have strict testing and, uh, you know, purity requirements and, uh, they, they do a really good job of putting out uh, a, su- a safe supply of cannabis
3: to people. Well, our legislators are convinced that they know more about um, appropriate THC levels than any scientist. So our medical marijuana cannot exceed 0. 0.5 uh, percent THC. Hmm. That's good. That's good enough. You don't need any more than that. Anything more than that. And you might begin to feel a little little silly or a little calm or something. And we don't want that.
2: That is, um, that's terrifying. But then it also shows that they've never used high seed because uh, a lot of the strains that I have that are uh, outdoor grown in Illinois, I have a lot of clients that grew last year and that are planning on growing this year. And so the CBD flower uh, that you can get is fantastic, and it really does provide um, effects when it comes to your anxiety or or pain that you may be feeling. And so uh, they're just they. There, I don't get it. I don't understand it. But like, there's something about that THC molecule that they just do not like.
3: It's an it's an intoxicant, and we we oh. we just we just believe in our bones that anything that's an intoxicant can't be good.
2: No, no, no. going I fight back uh, against that one because the, unless it's Jack Daniels. Daniels, uh, well, that, that's what I was going to get at, you know, you'll see, because the the last, the hardest drink in that Jack Daniels is that last one at the end of the evening, you know, because you probably don't need it, but you'll go ahead and self-administer it. But with cannabis and numerous occasion, I've been like, I'm good. I'm good. So it is the only inebriate intoxicant that I know that you self-limit, unlike heroin, unlike cocaine, unlike even caffeine or uh, tobacco or nicotine or or alcohol. Where you know you're addicted. Yeah.
3: In their defense and in the defense of law enforcement, they have years and years of experience showing them that there's an association, not necessarily a cause and effect, but there is an association between objectively criminal people, right? And the presence of marijuana smoke. They find them in the cars they don't find bottles of jack daniels they don't even necessarily find beer bottles except in the case of dwi but they find that marijuana so their experience proves to them rightly or wrongly that there's something evil about this devil weed
2: well that's terrible so where can we find out more about law enforcement against partnership i'm sorry law enforcement action partnership
3: well how about I broadcast it this way? There you go. Can you see that well enough?
2: Oh yeah, we can see it. We can see it great.
1: Yeah, so, we'll leave that in the link for anybody who wants to join. So, can civilians who uh, want to get involved? Is there any options for civilians? Or are there absolutely,
3: any absolutely, all all comers are welcome. You may not be allowed to be a, a speaker. You may have to have some law enforcement creds to be put on the stage in front of a bunch of people, but they'd be delighted for you to become a member and support them in some way.
1: Okay, great, we'll leave that link in the description for today's video. Thanks and for well, us. Link
2: to uh, their website, Law Enforcement Action lawenforcementactionpartnership.org. And we want to thank John Delaney. Uh, it was a wonderful program where we got to discuss issues that I think a lot of our viewers find very important. And then we got to learn more about Texas, which I I enjoyed greatly. So thanks so much for coming on the program, John.
3: Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure.
1: Thanks. And thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll see you on Wednesday.
3: Good day.